south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 274, covering the week of August 9th through August 13th, 2021. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page. You can pick up this podcast on the YouTube page. You can also see many of our lectures, our Abbeville U videos, which are awesome. They are dedicated to particular topics and are around six minutes or less. It's a great way to get a good education in about six minutes. The idea, of course, is the PragerU model, which many of those videos are okay, but a lot of them are also very bad when it comes to American history. You can also support the Abbeville Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org. Click on that Donate tab, and you can donate monthly, annually, or through a one-time gift. If you like the podcast, if you like the website, if you like our conferences, our programs, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. They, all those donations, whether it's monthly, annually, or a one-time gift, are tax-deductible to the folks and the law. So you do get a tax break for donating to us and helping us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Also, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to it. Let people know that you're interested in the Southern tradition, that it means something to you. You can also click on the shop tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. You can get one of our shirts with our logo on it. It's embroidered material. It's not screen printed, so it's good high-quality stuff. It will last a long time. Golf shirts, T-shirts, hats, good stuff. And, of course, you let people know that you are interested in the Institute and what we do. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic and the material of the week. Um, when you look at what we did this week, a lot of it was about the war. And I, and I want to say this from the beginning. The Abbeville Institute is not a Southern, quote-unquote, heritage organization. We're not. Our mission is to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, which is 400 years. 400 years of the Southern tradition. Now, the war occupies, of course, a pretty important place in that tradition because for four years, the South was independent, an independent country, de facto and de jure. Because if we concede on the legal issue, then we concede on the entire thing. So the South was de jure independent. It just had not been recognized by foreign powers. But we know when you look at secession and you look at the legality of secession, the South was certainly independent. It was uh, legally so. It had declared its independence through properly elected conventions, just as it ratified the Constitution in 1788. And so the South was a legally independent entity. The Confederate States were a legally independent entity between 1861 and 1865. Also, de facto, because they were not recognizing any federal law within their territory. So Lincoln's efforts to try to secure the South and maintain the quote-unquote the Union was a de facto recognition that the South was out of the Union. In fact, even northern newspapers started picking up on this. Well, we're at war with somebody. I mean, so what is the legal status of the South? Now, Lincoln, of course, declared that the South was in a state of rebellion, which gave him legal cover. He could say, well, they're still in the Union, and so I'm simply putting down this insurrection by calling up the militia. Now, did he follow all the proper procedures for doing that? Absolutely not. 
But regardless, that was his legal cover. So the war does occupy an important part of Southern memory, the Southern tradition. So many Southern heroes are born during the war. When I say born, of course, they weren't actually physically born then, but their reputations were made. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis. But these men were also great before that. I mean, if you look at Lee, Winfield Scott uh, remarked that he was the best officer he'd ever seen in the United States Army. So Winfield Scott, of course, was the only man to achieve the rank of lieutenant general besides George Washington before the war. I mean, this was an important position. Winfield Scott, a Southerner, by the way, said that. Zachary Taylor was Jefferson Davis's father-in-law for a very brief amount of time. Of course, Jefferson Davis was Secretary of War. He essentially created the apparatus that allowed for the Union government, for the Union, to create its army and plunder the South. I mean, this was, this was Davis's design. He was responsible for the renovations at the United States Capitol. Jefferson Davis was an important member of American society. And so were so many other Southerners in, uh, in the war effort. I just mentioned Zachary Taylor. His son, Richard Taylor, was a Confederate general. In fact, one of the best Confederate generals in the entire war. And that's undisputed. His Red River campaign was fantastic in the West. But you look at across the board how many men supported the Confederacy. Lewis Washington, who is the great-grandnephew of George Washington, supported the Confederacy, had descendants from Thomas Jefferson, and of course President John Tyler was in the Confederate Congress, at least elected to it. He died before he could take his seat. So, I mean, so many people, descendants, and we have an article actually on the Institute about this by Clyde Wilson, all of the different prominent members of American society in the founding period that had descendants that fought for the Confederacy. Now, of course, you can make the same case for the Union. There were many men who had prominent uh, northern relatives in the founding period who fought for the Union. But then, of course, you also had a large number of immigrants fighting for the Union as well. William Marvers, Marvels, excuse me, William Marvels, Lincoln's Mercenaries, is a fantastic look at this. A really good book that looks at the amount of money that was spent by the Union just to get soldiers, whether they were foreign or domestic, to go and fight. We know the bounties that were paid and other things. But, I mean, this was a primary motivating factor for many men who fought for the Union, money. And that, whether, whether it was support for the Union from the financial class or support for the Union from the, from the soldiering class, they wanted revenue, money. So there's so many complexities to this. But I bring all this up again to point out that four-year period is important, but it's not the South. And so while the Confederate battle flag is important, and we do feature it prominently on our Daily Dose of Dixie, which is our email list. If you're not on that, just go to abbevilleinstitute.org, give us an email address. We give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition, and you get it on our email list. Why we use that there, and of course some people have questioned why we do it, it is a symbol of the South. So is the first national flag, the second national flag, the third national flag, all those flags are. The Bonnie Blue, many of the state flags, for example, the Alabama state flag is a Confederate flag. So is the Georgia state flag, the Florida state flag. I mean, you go down the list, the North Carolina state flag, they're Confederate flags. So it's certainly part of the Southern tradition that war occupies a great spot. And of course, all the monuments, we defend all of those. We, we think they should all stay. Uh, so that's part of it. But we also want to talk about other parts of the Southern tradition, whether it's literature, music, art, 
architecture. The political side which stretches from the very first elected assembly in the British North American colonies in 1619 in Virginia all the way up to the present. Different periods of time in there and what the South meant to the American political tradition. The ideas of the South, whether it was something that they did like secession or nullification, which they pursued more vigorously than the North, even though the North also pursued these things at times as well. The original principles of the Constitution... We know the South dominated the United States for the first 80 years of its existence and in many ways still dominated it afterwards. And of course, the North can't stand this, which is why they write books about it, how the South won the Civil War and all these different kinds of things. The fact is, the South has always been the most important section in America. It's who Hillary Clinton was essentially referring to when she called people deplorables. Now, we know that there are people that are in line with Southern principles in other parts of the United States. But in reality, what those Southern principles are is a Jeffersonian understanding of America. Jefferson, of course, was Southern. Now, the only thing Jefferson didn't have was the religious side of it. But there were other Southerners who were important in that process as well. And if you look at the Southern evangelical tradition, uh, it's, uh, it's the most important evangelical tradition in the modern age. Now, uh, some of that came out of northern puritanical instruction as the Great Awakenings spread to the south. There was certainly part of that as well. But uh, the south, again, hung on to these things longer than anyone else. And so that became, this is why the south has been called the Bible Belt, because of its dedication to evangelical Christianity. But not just evangelical Christianity, also Christianity in general, whether it's uh, other denominations within the Christian church as well. Southerners have held on to those things longer than anyone else in the United States. So Christianity is important in the Southern tradition. All of these things matter. So when we look at the material we have for this week, it's a long-winded way of saying, we're going to talk about the war this week because that's mostly what we, we looked at. But I want to start, before we get to that, uh, with a general observation about the pieces. The first piece of the week, the South's Monument Man by our resident Jap uh, scholar in Japan. He's not Japanese, but scholar living in Japan is Jack Marcourt. And his piece on Moses Ezekiel, who was a very famous sculptor, he was also Jewish and supported the war, served in the Confederate Army, was... Uh, a, a great admirer of Robert E. Lee. He's Jewish. There are many Jewish Confederates. In fact, what you find when you look at the history of the South is tolerance more than anything else. The South was a biracial society, whereas you could not say that about the North. The South tolerated white and black, tolerated biracialism more than any other place in the United States, and white Northerners pointed this out. It's one of the reasons why they opposed the South, because they thought that they wanted the Western territories to be open for free white labor alone. So the South's biracialism was something that everyone recognized and Southerners lived with in for 400 years. I mean, in larger extent than anywhere else in the United States. The South also tolerated Jewish people more than the North. And you find the very first instance of a Jewish 
cabinet member in the South and Judah P. Benjamin during the, con- during the uh, Confederacy. You had uh, David U. Lee, who was a prominent Confederate from Florida. He was Jewish. But there's many, many others. In fact, uh, I believe there's going to be a film made about this, a documentary about Jewish Confederates that um, is supposed to be pretty good. Um, and we have uh, Michael Kogan, who is uh, a great supporter of the Institute, and uh, an ardent Jewish Confederate. I mean, that's his family was. He, he tells a great story. His family has this blood-stained battle flag that his ancestors carried in battle. And, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. These are all Jewish Americans, Jewish Southerners, who were fighting for independence. There's a fairly large uh, pro-Confederate Jewish population in Charleston during the war. So, I mean, you have this diversity. And, of course, in Southern society... Uh, you have uh, you know, the original Siamese twins, their sons, uh, fought for the Confederacy or supported the Confederacy. Uh, you have Hispanic uh, supporters of the Confederacy. You have American Indian supporters of the Confederacy. So the Confederacy was always a much more diverse place than the North, always. It didn't mean that there uh, wasn't all the other situations that you had anywhere else in terms of racial uh, strife and stratification and other things. Of course, that existed there. And the South recognized those things as well as part of uh, a typical 19th century government. These are things that the North also recognized. But the fact that the South had that diversity and lived with it is something interesting. And so the piece on Wednesday by Tom Daniel on Ray Charles... And he gets into this. He talks about white music and black music and how, and he says this anytime he gives a talk about music, and we had a great webinar with Tom uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. He talks about music, and he says, look, it's Northerners who try to segregate this stuff out. There's white music, there's black music. Ray Charles actually produced several great country music albums. He was a fantastic musician from Georgia. Of course, Georgia on my mind is such a beautiful song. And anybody that loves Georgia or has lived in Georgia loves the song. It doesn't matter that Ray Charles sang it. Of course, Willie Nelson also sang it. But Ray Charles' version is still the best version. And he, he gets into some of the other songs that he did. And he shows how, I mean, just how good Ray Charles was as a musician. A musician and a Southern musician at that. His Southern bona fides, you cannot, you cannot deny that Ray Charles is a product of Georgia. There would be no Ray Charles without Georgia. That's something that people don't understand. And that love of place and that importance of place and developing character in the South is so important. This is why we've run articles about, you know, who's your people and where are you from and these kind of things. That attachment to place which matters. A recognition and an awe of where you are. And this is something that's beautiful about the Southern tradition. It's why Southerners are willing to fight and die in such large numbers and large percentages, larger percentages than what you had in the North, supported the independence of the Confederacy because it was home. 75% of white Southerners fought in the war. Those numbers were dramatically different in the North. 75% of white Southerners fought in the war. And the casualty numbers, of course, the, the cost of the war in the South was much higher than in the North. So this is why the war does matter in the South. Now, Southerners now detach from it for... 150 years, have started to lose interest in it. And many millennials, we've gotten emails about this. I'm a millennial, and all I ever hear about is how bad these people are, and I just don't want to like them. But yet, when I go and I start reading it, I start admiring them. Yes, 
This is what happens when you read about these people. They were great Christian men. Didn't matter if they were from uh, you know, Lee's class, even though Pryor says he's middle class, but of course from a great American family or from the Washingtons or Jeffersons and Madisons, I mean, the planter class, whatever it was. Of course, there were always scoundrels in these people. That You're going to have that no matter what society you're talking about. But many of these men were great Christian men, and many of the men who fought for the Confederacy were great Christian men. This is what they were. And they were heroic in the truest sense of the term. They were fighting a losing cause and yet still continued to, to die for it. They were defending their homes from invasion. That's the most noble cause in the history of the world. It's always been recognized as that. And yet only in America, only in America is that seen as uh, terrible. Southerners were fighting for their homes in defense of their land, their state, their homes. They weren't, they weren't fighting an imperial conquest, moving from Germany into France or Belgium or Poland or Russia, or Great Britain. I mean, a lot of people say, well, the South was just the Nazis. This is just so stupid. The South would have fought the Nazis. In fact, many descendants did. Nathan Bedford Forrest's descendant was blown up over the air in, in, uh, in World War II. I mean, you had so many Southerners in that war, men who proudly flew the Confederate flag in World War II, fighting the Nazis. It's just ridiculous to say that Southerners would have supported the Nazis. Stupid. It's, the most, it's one of the most asinine and stupid assertions to make. Southerners would have been against Nazism and National Socialism, against fascism. They weren't fascists. They considered themselves to be Republicans with a lowercase r. They believed in elected assemblies as much as the North. We have to remember that even in the North, it wasn't until around 1860 that blacks could vote, and then a very few states Women couldn't vote in the North. I mean, this was, you know, this was society at the time. So they were certainly Republicans, believed in representative government. They weren't Nazis. They didn't believe in dictatorship. In fact, one of the great problems of the Confederacy is that the states resisted Davis over and over again. Davis could not be a military dictator like Lincoln because the structure was not there in the Confederate Constitution to allow it. So you didn't have a situation like you had with Lincoln as essentially as a military dictator of the United States. It's one of the most preposterous assertions. The Nazis were expanding the German Empire, the Reich. Southerners are simply just trying to hold on to what they have. In the face of overwhelming odds, they recognize this. I mean, people, this idea that the, the, somehow after the war... It was made up that the South is facing overwhelming odds and that they just barely hung on. This was recognized during the war. <laughs> during the war. Now, certainly Southerners thought they were superior to Northerners. They did before the war. They did during the war. But they understood the situation. It was going to be a hard conflict. And as they lost, particularly into the end of the war, they understood this was a losing cause. So I point out Moses Ezekiel because, of course, the beautiful monuments that he created and Ray Charles, the beautiful music that he made. Beautiful parts of the Southern tradition. These monuments that Moses Ezekiel crafted, sculpted, 
particularly the one in Arlington. Just beautiful. Beautiful. And that's what we're losing as these things are torn down across the South. We're losing art. We're losing these beautiful works of art that people from around the world wanted to tour. Nobody wants to tour what Northerners are going to put in their place. They won't come for that. In fact, I think that tourism is going to take a big hit in these cities because people won't go to them anymore. Who wants to see what preposterous monstrosity Northerners will put in their place? Nobody. Nobody. But people from around the world wanted to see the beautiful monuments that were created in the 19th century, which is a period of monument building across the world in sculpture and architecture. They wanted to see these things. Nobody wants to see modern art. Nobody tours goes on tour to see these things. Nobody goes on tour. I mean, they want to see the antebellum homes. This is why antebellum homes are still popular destinations for weddings and other things. This is what they want to see. It's, it's a legacy. It's a tradition. It's a civilization. Just like going to castles in Europe, which, of course, practice feudalism, which is slavery and everything else, but people go to them because they want to imagine for a minute the romance of it all in some ways, even though there's always the downside to it. It's the romance of it all that they want to be attached to. But the cause matters, of course, and why the South fought and what was it over. And Phil Lee has a very good piece on Friday about tariffs. And one of the great mistakes that Southerners, I think, make is when they say the war was about tariffs. They have to understand that that's, you have to explain it in a way. The South represented a free trade area. The North would have continued to have its protective measures, and trade would have flowed into the South at the expense of the North had the South maintained its independence. This would have been disastrous for the Northern economy because they were dependent on the tariff. And if they're not importing goods, well they're going to lose revenue. And so it was the competition over an, a free trade South that worried Lincoln the most when he would say things like, what about my tariff? Yeah, that was going to be a major problem for the North should the South leave the Union. Now, of course, if Lincoln had simply let the Deep South go in peace, you still would have had Virginia and North Carolina and Tennessee, and you still would have had Arkansas of course, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, all those states would have been in the Union still. And those slave states, because they were slave states, Missouri, um, would have been part of a slaveholding republic because the South, the North would have maintained that, right? Lincoln had promised not to end slavery in any of those states. Now, of course, maybe within a few years, you might have seen an amendment that would have abolished slavery in those states. Who knows what would have happened? But at least for the immediate period, Lincoln was certainly willing to let those states keep slavery. But Phil Lee, I think, does an excellent job pointing out that the tariff question was more about the absence of a tariff in the South compared to the existence of a tariff in the North, which would have been disastrous for the Northern economy. And so I recommend everyone reads that very short article. And Phil Lee's books on the war are excellent. If you haven't gotten them, his book on Reconstruction is great. But he's also written some pretty good books on the war itself and the economic part of the war. And so I'd recommend Trading with the Enemy is very good. I'd recommend those books. And he also has a YouTube channel, by the way, where he does he goes out and he, he talks about various parts of the war. He really is, he, he is the epitome of the amateur Civil War scholar. He doesn't have a degree in history. 
uh, but he is better than 99.9% of uh, American Civil War, quote-unquote, historians in the United States. He's so good uh, and he, because he just reads, and he goes out and he looks at things, and he is not tied down to the fashionable interpretations because he doesn't have to get a tenure-track job somewhere. So that gives him some independence, which is excellent. Of course, and then we had the piece on... Um, Thursday about secession, the causes of the war of secession. Um, historical context is by Arad Obar, and it is historical context explains secession. This is a really good piece because he provides different quotes and arguments that show that slavery was not the core reason the South left the Union. As the Richmond Inquirer said in 1863, slavery was the mere occasion and not the object or the end of this war. The South is fighting for national independence and freedom from Yankee domination. The people are willing to sacrifice all the slaves at the cause of freedom. This is true. We know it because it was, they said it. They said it. Judy P. Benjamin in 1864, the sole object for which we would have consented to commit all or all to the hazards of this war is the vindication of our right to self-government and independence. For that end, no sacrifice is too great, save that of honor, meaning that they would have sacrificed slavery to gain independence. And we know it because they said it. Now, certainly some Southerners were opposed to this. There's no doubt about it. When the Congress was presented to the Congress to allow for slaves to earn their freedom by fighting for the Confederacy, there was opposition to it. And people like Robert Toombs and others said that they were against that. But the fact is, there were many Southerners who were willing to do it, including Jefferson Davis, Independence was their goal, not slavery. In fact, as Obar points out, by simply seceding, they cut themselves off from the territory, meaning they bottled slavery up in the South. They would have had to expand into South America, which there was some discussion about. I mean, look, uh, Matthew Fontaine Maury uh, said as much, but even that plan was essentially rejected. So this idea that somehow the South was simply fighting for slavery is disproven over and over again by, uh, by the evidence, by the historical evidence. And that idea of self-determination and self-government was the driving force in Southern secession. So I want to wrap up this week with the book review by Dave Benner, Chaining Down Leviathan. Dave, again, is another great independent scholar, historian, lives in Tennessee, uh, he's a young guy, but he does such good work um, on American history. He just loves history, and uh, he's he's not teaching history. He doesn't have a Ph.D. in history, but he loves history, and he does good stuff. And so this review of Chaining Down Leviathan by Marco Bassani, who we had Marco on for a webinar, which was a lot of fun. But again, the entire point of the book is to show that the South— by default, held on to this American tradition of independence and self-government longer than anyone else. As Benner says, most significantly, Bassani artfully illustrates the manner in which the president disregarded the Constitution's original intent in the pursuit of his perpetual Union creed. Indeed, Lincoln jailed hundreds of Northern editorialists that, that criticized his administration, suspended the writ of habeas corpus, placed members of Maryland's legislature under house arrest, 
such that they could not congregate, began a system of conscription for the first time in American history, instituted an income tax, and universally called forth an army of 75,000 soldiers to invade the South while Congress was not in session. While Lincoln ins uh, ins insisted the Southern states had no right to secede, he treated them nonetheless as independent enemy states for the purposes of waging war against them. By disregarding the originally ratified Constitution, then Lincoln ushered in a new era of political consolidation. And that is the point of the book, to show that the American tradition was actually against that, but Lincoln created something else. I think that's something we have to understand with this war, with the war, what it meant. And Southerners did realize that when the war was over. Some of the monument dedication ceremonies, they'll say it. This monument is being put up in defiance of centralization to show that we weren't necessarily wrong, we were defeated. That's the point. And I think that when you look at Southern history and you look at the history of the United States and you look at American constitutional history, the only thing you can get out of that is that the American political tradition is decentralization. It's something the Abbeville Institute talks about quite a lot. It's something we do quite a lot because Americans need to get that as we're facing different struggles in America and different things come up here and there. And what are our first principles? Well, the first principles are Jeffersonian. It's local self-government. It's independence. It's, it's personal independence, political independence, taking care of family and hearth and home first. That's what Southerners, that's what the war represented to most Southerners. It was keeping the Yankees out of the South. That's what they were fighting for. And if that the Yankees would stop fighting them, they would stop fighting back. This was often said. It's that dedication to the permanent things, to beautiful things, whether it's music, which is entirely Southern, literature, which Southern literature is the best in America, art and architecture, I mean, the, the architecture of the United States Capitol, Washington, D.C., would not be what it is without this uh, Greek revival, which Southerners relished in. I mean, they love this stuff, right? So the whole idea of the architecture comes out of a Southern vision of America. That's it. So I think that if we think about American history and we lose sight of how important the South is, the beautiful parts of the Southern tradition, as I've said before in other podcasts, the Southern tradition is a rose bush. You don't hack down the bush because there are some thorns in it. You admire the roses. You understand the thorns are there, and you continue to cultivate that bush because of the beautiful flowers it creates. All traditions have things you don't want to emulate, things you don't want to bring back, things that we don't recognize today as being important. But all traditions also have roses. And in the South, those roses, those blooms, are more beautiful than anything else in America. That's why we do what we do at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time. <music> <laughs>